0: Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton,
1: and I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we'll hear from Murray Dobbin, who will be speaking about the exorbitant income being paid to Canada's CEOs. We'll also hear from Kai Hazarlis, who is in Sudan and can tell us about some of the political developments surrounding the recent Sudan referendum. And we'll hear from Chris Roberts a researcher with the Canadian Labour Congress about the Harper government's plan to reform pensions.
0: Here are the alert headlines for the week of January twentieth, two 2010.
1: NDP leader Jack Layton has pledged to campaign in the next election for all Canadian troops to come home Changing Canada's military mission from combat to training will only mean that Canada will train and equip many who will later join the insurgency, or at best, create a military machine for a corrupt and distrusted Afghan president, Mr. Layton said in a speech at the University of Ottawa. Every year, one in five soldiers walks out of the Afghan National Army for good. How many of these become Taliban fighters taking their training and weapons with them, he said. You think you're training government officers, but then you're really training insurgents," he said. Even if the military is loyal, he added, it will serve a president, Hamid Karzai, quote, that's very closely tied to rigged elections and rampant corruption, and discredited with his own people.
0: Former Haitian dictator Jean-Claude or Baby Doc Duvalier's stunning return to his homeland has drawn a mixed reaction from his opponents and supporters. Duvalier insisted Monday his return was not political, saying he had returned to help in the reconstruction of Haiti. Duvalier's spokesman, Henry Robert Sterling, portrayed the 59-year-old former President for Life as merely a concerned elder statesman who wanted to see the effects of the devastating earthquake on his homeland. Duvalier's surprise arrival in the capital last Sunday has raised many questions about his motives. Some fear Duvalier's mere presence will bring back the extreme polarization and political violence of the past. Amnesty International has called on Haiti to arrest Duvalier immediately for crimes against humanity, including extrajudicial executions, disappearances and systematic torture.
1: A team of election observers led by former U.S. President Jimmy Carter says South Sudan's just-ended referendum on independence was credible and consistent with international standards. Carter's observation mission also praised the Sudanese for their patience and commitment during the week-long vote, which ended on January 15th. United Nations and EU missions have also said the vote was largely peaceful and legitimate. The referendum was part of a 2005 peace deal that ended more than two decades of civil war. Official results are not expected until next month, but the South was expected to vote overwhelmingly for secession. If the process stays on track... Southern Sudan will become the world's newest country in July, but the two sides still have to negotiate border demarcation and oil rights.
0: Tunisia's Prime Minister, Mohamed Ganouchi, has announced the formation of a national unity government days after a popular revolt ousted the President. The Prime Minister, Foreign, Interior and Defence Ministers are to retain their jobs, with several opposition figures joining the government. The Prime Minister pledged to allow greater political and media freedoms. He added that all political prisoners would be freed, and the media would be permitted total freedom. The announcement came amid growing pressure from demonstrators for Tunisia to make a clean break with the policies of the former president, who was in office for 23 years. Correspondents say there is some uncertainty over whether the inclusion of several veteran ministers in senior positions will be acceptable to those protesting on the streets.
1: A former Swiss banker has passed on data containing account details of 2,000 prominent people to Wikileaks founder Julian Assange. The data was held on two disks handed over by Rudolf Elmer at a press conference in London. Mr. Assange promised full disclosure once the information had been vetted. Elmer is scheduled to go on trial in Switzerland on Wednesday for breaking bank secrecy laws. Although it was not confirmed what activities might be covered by the data, The Wikileaks head noted that previous data provided by Mr. Elmer had shed light on tax evasion, the hiding of proceeds of criminal acts, and the protection of assets of those about to fall out of political favor. The data covers multinationals, financial firms, and wealthy individuals from many countries, including the UK, US, and Germany.
0: The group International Campaign for Human Rights in Iran says the Iranian government has executed almost 50 people during the past three weeks, or an average of about one person every eight hours since the beginning of the new year. Most of the executions are believed to be related to drug trafficking crimes, although at least two were of political activists. The news came as it emerged today that Iranian officials had apparently suspended the sentence of hanging for Sakina Mohammadi Ashtiani, a 43-year-old woman whose sentence of death by stoning for adultery sparked an international outcry.
1: A new Save the Children report warns that children in Gaza are coming under regular gunfire from Israeli soldiers while scavenging in the ruins of buildings bombed during the Israeli invasion of Gaza in 2009. 26 children were shot by Israeli troops close to the border last year, according to the UNICEF-led working group on children affected by armed conflict. The children allegedly scavenge for construction materials due to the ongoing blockade of Gaza, which means that no new materials are allowed in. Thousands of homes destroyed during the conflict have yet to be rebuilt due to the shortage. Salam Canaan, Save the Children UK's country director in the occupied Palestinian territory says, quote, the blockade must end immediately and there must be a review of policies with respect to the border area.
0: Two South African groups have launched a move to get an arrest warrant issued against Zippe Livni, the chairperson of Israel's Kadima party, during a visit to the country next week. Ha'aretz reports that the groups filing the warrant allege that Livni committed war crimes in her role in Israel's three-week war on Gaza in late 2008-2009. Livni was then foreign minister in the government of Ehud Olmer. Livni was invited to South Africa by the local Jewish community to give a number of speeches and hold meetings in Cape Town and Johannesburg.
1: The Cuban government has welcomed the latest U.S. measures to ease restrictions on travel and remittances to this country, but said they had limited reach. In a statement published Monday by Cuba's government media, the foreign ministry said, The measures confirm that there is no willingness to change the policy of blockade and destabilization against Cuba, and they will be used, to strengthen the instruments of subversion and interference in the internal affairs of Cuba. Nevertheless, the communique says the measures were the result of broad sectors of U.S. society that for years have sought the end of the embargo against Cuba and the elimination of the ban on travel to the Caribbean island nation by U.S. citizens. In April 2009, Obama had already allowed unlimited travel and money transfers by Cubans in the U.S. to their families in Cuba. Now, any U.S. citizen can send up to $2,000 a year to people in Cuba, except to government officials or active members of the ruling Communist Party.
0: Chinese President Hu Jintao has said the international currency system dominated by the U.S. dollar is a product of the past. Mr. Hu also said China was taking steps to replace it with the yuan, its own currency, but acknowledged that would be a fairly long process. The remarks to two US newspapers come ahead of a state visit by the Chinese leader to Washington this week. They reflect continuing tensions over currency issues between the two powers. Beijing has previously come under pressure over its currency from the US, which has accused China of manipulating the yuan to help boost Chinese exports. Some economists suggest that China's growth strategy, with its focus on exports and state-led investment, may be incompatible with Mr. Hu's global currency ambitions. In order for the yuan to oust the dollar as a global reserve currency, international central banks and investors would need to be able to get their hands on huge amounts of the currency. Those were the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of January twentieth, two 2011.
1: The Winnipeg Reading Capital Reading Group will have their first meeting on January twenty-first. This meeting will plan how to approach this reading and discussion of the main economic works by Marx, including Capital, Volume 1, over the coming weeks and months. The group is run by professors and Canadian Dimension Collective members Radhika Desai and Henry Heller. Meet in Room 307, Tier Building at the University of Manitoba at 6.30 p.m.
0: A donation of $35 million to the University of Toronto by Peter Monk of the Barrick Gold Corporation led the school to create the Monk School of Global Affairs. A one-day conference on January 22nd at the University of Toronto will explore the implications of this donation, the influence Monk will have over the school's curriculum, and a broader examination of Monk himself and Barrick Gold. The conference will also include a session on Lessons from California with faculty and students from UC Berkeley. For more information, go to monkoutofuoft.wordpress.com.
1: Eve Angler will be in Winnipeg on January 23rd to discuss how Canada lost its bid for a UN Security Council seat and, more generally, the effect of the Harper government on Canada's international reputation. The talk begins at 1.30 p.m. in the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library. On January 30th, Engler will also be speaking in Castlegar, B.C. at the Castlegar Public Library at 3 p.m. and then at 7 p.m. in Nelson, B.C. at the TNT Theatre. All events have a $5 suggested donation.
0: Ideas Left Out is hosting a discussion on the Toronto left in the 1970s on January 23rd in Toronto. Led by Peter Graham, a doctoral student at Queen's University, this event is part of a discussion series that is for and from the movements. All discussions are non-sectarian, anti-imperialist, accessible, original, creative, and openly debated. The event begins at 4 o'clock p.m. in room 8201 at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto.
1: United Steelworkers Local 1005 and its 900 members and 9,000 pensioners are waging a battle on two fronts. They are at once fighting against foreign-owned companies like US Steel, who are attempting to steal workers' futures by attacking their pensions, and the Harper government, who is attempting to hand public pensions over to private banks. The OFL, CLC, USW Local 1005, and Hamilton and District Labour Council are calling for a massive province-wide mobilization to stop U.S. Steel and other foreign-owned companies from wrecking our communities and stealing our futures. On Saturday, January 29th, meet at Hamilton
0: City Hall at 1 p.m. and join the fight back. The Manitoba Eco Network will be hosting their Real Green Film Festival this year on February 4th and 5th in Winnipeg. Force of Nature, the David Suzuki movie, will be screened on the 4th at the Winnipeg Art Gallery as part of a fundraising effort for the Manitoba Eco Network. The following day, there will be a number of films being screened at the University of Winnipeg along with plenty of discussion time devoted to the problems these films document. For more information, go to mbeconetwork.org.
1: The 20th Annual Women's Memorial March for Missing and Murdered Women in Winnipeg is happening on February 14th. But from February 1st until the day of the march, there will be a number of commemorative events around the city. These include talking circles, art auction fundraisers, craft and poetry nights, movies, and music. Similar events are scheduled for Vancouver. For more information on these commemorative events and the march, go to Women's womensmemorialmarch.wordpress.com.
0: And that was around the left in seven days for the week of January 20th, 2011. By 2.30 in the afternoon, after having arrived in his office at 9 o'clock that morning, on average, the chief executive officers of Canada's 100 largest corporations will have made as much income as the average Canadian worker makes in an entire year. In 2009, his salary and bonus totaled $6.6 million. To talk to us about this phenomenon, Alert has contacted freelance writer Murray Dobbin at his home in British Columbia. Welcome back to Alert, Murray. Thanks, Ashley. This seems like an outrageous differential, with CEOs on average getting over 150 times the pay of the average worker. Is this something new, or has it always been this large?
2: Uh, No, I would say this is is a a reflection of of, of what happened sort of after the mid-1970s when uh, the old so-called social contract ended. And that old social contract was was sort of the, the height of the of, of, of the level of equality that was reached uh, in Canada and the United States and other English-speaking developed countries. And at that time, the, the ratio was more like 20 to 1. Um, and in fact, uh, in, in other countries even today, like Japan and, and Germany, the ratio is under 20 to 1. So this is a phenomenon that's that really unique to English-speaking capitalist countries, uh, developed countries, uh, and partly because of the whole Chicago School of economics, which is you know is sort of the ideological um, uh, roots of neoliberalism. And so it's it's a phenomenon in English-speaking countries primarily, uh, where you know other aspects of of um, sort of radical free market policies also exist. So it's it's new, and it it really it, it's really a phenomenon of the last, I would say, fifteen to twenty years, and certainly has accelerated in the last ten years.
0: Can you explain a little bit more about what's happened in the past decade or so that explains this phenomenal growth?
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a number of things. In, in the column I wrote this week, I I, I I sort of say it's a it's a reflection of a, a sort of new feudalism. I mean, that that period after the mid nineteen seventies with 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 what is called the Washington consensus, and the Washington consensus really consisted of a number of a number of themes: one, you know, free trade, privatization, uh, huge tax cuts to the wealthy and corporations, um, uh, privatization, uh, the cuts to social programs. I mean, that was the new consensus after the mid-1970s, and so that that really um, it, it was was the whole was the whole package uh, of of. Capitalists essentially looking at democracy. I mean, they actually there was a book written, *The Crisis of Democracy*, and its conclusion was there was an excess of democracy. People's expectations about what uh, they could get from government had risen too high, and so now we we actually hear a complete reversal of that. I mean, there's, there's clearly a, a, a democratic deficit, but I think one of this what this what this really in some ways reflects, and even though CEOs might not see it this way, is just a, a statement by by the new elite, the, the new the new elite being the corporate CEOs and, and executives, um, is, is just a, a statement that they, they clearly want to separate themselves from everyone else. And you know, this is one way of doing it. You know, say we're gonna, we're, we'll take as much money out of the system as we want because we can. And so it really is a, uh, it, it, in some ways it's a, it's a statement that the old system where there was a degree of equality is well and truly dead, and that, uh, that this, is, this is symbolic of that.
0: If we had one of these CEOs with us here now on the show, how do you think that he would justify his income?
2: Well, I, I mean, I, probably a couple of different ways. One, he would say, uh, you know, I'm just charging what the market um, says I'm worth. And that's true. There's, there's no question that these guys can, can say, well, if you don't, pay me $5 million, I'll go to company X, and and they'll pay me that. And so, there is this sense that the the market is is quite efficient at determining price, but the market is not very efficient at determining value. So they can say that the market determines their price, and that's true. But if you ask them, you know, are you actually worth this much? Is any CEO, any executive, any employee of any company, you know, worth that much money? And, And there's no way that they could that they could answer truthfully and say, "Yes, I, I'm actually worth that much." You know, I, I am, I am worth that much money because I have this much impact on the future and the, and the, uh, you know, the profitability and the, and the competitiveness of the corporation. Uh, because, I mean, if you look at all management theory, it's really clear that that corporations can't survive if they depend on geniuses and supermen to run them, and um, uh, so they're they're certainly not worth it in terms of their ability. I mean, if you think of a corporation that has, you know, 15 or 20 or 30,000 employees, the notion that one CEO can be sort of everywhere at once and, and have an impact on all the decisions that are being made in the corporation, well, you know, it's just absurd on the face of it. But that's essentially what they're implying. You know, they're they're implying that that they are geniuses and Superman. I mean, why else would you pay them 10 or 20 or 40 or 150 million dollars? So there is no connection between their actual abilities and their impact on their companies and what they are being paid, and if they argue that, then then they're just not being honest.
0: If we go back to the 1970s for a minute, shortly after he was elected as the first NDP Premier of Manitoba, Ed Schreier famously declared that there was no justification for bosses getting more than two or three times the pay of their employees. Nothing much really came of that. But what do you think about legislating, say, a maximum annual income salary parallel to our minimum wage legislation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we can we can imagine all kinds of all kinds of solutions, but I, I think in some ways it's it, it's not a particularly useful exercise because it's not going to happen. You know, these guys know that that they can get away with it, and I mean, there's been lots of talk, especially after the economic meltdown, and, these, and the kinds of have almost destroyed the global economy, and they're still getting their bonuses. Um, I mean, you know, if if we suddenly had a social democratic government uh, and we had newspapers that weren't completely dedicated to the neoliberal agenda, then we could start imagining, uh, you know, ways of of dealing with this. But to uh, try to imagine legislation and other measures in in the current context is is sort of a, a fruitless exercise, because... What we need to be doing is imagining you know how how would we how would we recover democracy so that we could actually implement some solutions so that you know we can imagine solutions, but they are a long way down the road in terms of our capacity to make sure that they 're implemented uh, you know you could you could you could say you know you could establish legislation that would say any any salary um, over a certain amount cannot be deducted as a as a business expense uh, you could put caps on you could you know you could um, tax um, bonuses and stock options as, uh, as ordinary income rather than as capital gains. I mean, it's, all these measures are possible. You can imagine all kinds of them, but, you know, without the democratic capacity to implement them, it's just talk.
0: Well, thanks for speaking with us about this uh, really important and interesting issue. That's um, all the time we have for today. Um, but thank you for being here with us. Thanks, Ashley. That was Murray Dobbin from British Columbia, a freelance writer, talking with us about the exorbitant uh, income and bonuses that CEOs in Canada receive.
1: Kai Hasselreese is an independent reporter. He has been in Sudan, in South Sudan, in the city of Juba for about three weeks throughout the course of the Sudanese referendum which will see Sudan separate into north and south areas and uh... he is speaking to us now from Kampala uh... in uh... neighboring Uganda so uh... Kai welcome to alert now uh... thank
3: you for having me as a guest sir.
1: Okay. Uh, Now, could you tell us, first of all, I mean, you've been uh, observing uh, throughout the course of the the referendum. You've uh, noticed a lot of people going to the polls. Uh, It it seems as if uh, what we're hearing is that the, uh, the vote seems to be going mostly in favor of separation. Uh, could you possibly just cite an example of something that you've seen or experienced that, that for you captures the significance of, of uh, the enthusiasm people have for uh, going to the vote in this referendum?
3: Oh, yeah, The atmosphere in South Sudan right now is jubilant. Like, we're talking cars driving around with people waving South Sudanese flags out of them uh, we're talking people literally chanting, na-na-na-na, nana, hey, goodbye, in the street towards North Sudan. I was at a rally, a parade, just a couple of days before voting started, and one of the South Sudanese men who was parading was literally wearing these these uh, big campy handcuffs and he was holding them over his head, and he was saying that he was not going to remove his handcuffs until he voted for separation and at that point that would be the symbolism for him that he was uh... throwing off the shackles of oppression uh, of the uh... northern sudanese leadership like there is no denying the long-standing animosity between the mostly muslim and arab north and the mostly christian and black South. Uh, the the people i talked to in south sudan uh, after uh, literally decades of conflict with the North, are very thrilled to be having the opportunity to uh, separate from North Sudan and create their own country.
1: Now, the the Khartoum government uh, clearly does not want to see uh, this uh, section of the country separate. Uh, what uh, have you seen them do to try to influence the, the outcome of the vote?
3: Uh, that, now, that's a good question. i There is no doubt that the North Sudanese leadership would rather uh, see South Sudan stay, um, mainly because South Sudan is rich in oil and North Sudan is uh, getting rich off that oil, um, as South Sudanese people think, even to a greater extent than they are. Um, Having said that... you know, I mean, now that the voting is over, the voting took place over the course of a week, uh, Jimmy Carter and his Carter Center, uh, uh, voting, uh, observers were in the country the whole time throughout the country and they say that it was free and fair. And, and I have no doubt it was. Like, I, I, I don't think that there are any allegations that the Northern Sudanese people tried to influence the vote at all. In fact, uh, it was like totally one-sided campaigning uh, by only the, the side for separation while I was there. Like, there, there are campaign signs literally littered all over South Sudan, and they, every single one of them is for separation.
1: Hmm. So there's, there's no, no evidence of a vote rigging or voter intimidation or anything like that?
3: Well, not yet. I mean, I think what the Carter Center people are talking about is uh, everything ran smoothly, voters lined up, they all, everybody who wanted to get their opportunity to vote got the opportunity to, uh, you know, stick their thumb in the little ink pad and and put it on the ballot next to a uh, an open hand uh, uh, symbolizing uh, secession or two uh, hands, kind of um, shaking hands, which uh, uh, identified as unity, uh, which is, probably maybe 5% or or fewer people voted for. Um, By the way, the ballot was like that because uh, three-quarters of the country or more is illiterate. Uh, So it's a ballot using symbols. Um, Now, I suppose it's possible that once the ballots get up to North Sudan, then they could disappear or be reshuffled in some way or something like that. But uh, I don't think anyone is... Is too worried about that. I think the real worry, and I think it is uh, a very legitimate worry in this process, is that uh, probably what I think will happen is that at some point in the next month or so, there will be an announcement that that South Sudan has voted to separate. North Sudan will grudgingly uh, accept that result and say that they accept independent South Sudan. But then what's going to happen is that the two sides are going to have to get together uh, to negotiate some huge and potentially explosive issues, the main one being the border line, uh, because neither side has agreed on what uh, borders this new country of South Sudan would have. And the big issue is starting at is oil. South Sudan has most of Sudan's oil, uh, and yet it flows in pipelines. To the north, the north wants to keep as as much of that oil revenue as they can, and the two sides have not agreed yet if South Sudan separates on how that oil is going to be, uh, how the oil uh, revenues are going to be divided. Uh, So I think that the the fear that a lot of people have is that once negotiations start, they might not necessarily go very well, and that that's when real conflict could start. and having just been in South Sudan, in the city of Cuba, the capital city, for the past three weeks. And it's pretty obvious to me that South Sudan is preparing for the possibility of war. I mean, this is a country that has been at war uh, almost nonstop for decades now, uh, for the last six years of, um, of the, the peace agreement between the two sides. But South Sudan. Just even over the course of the three weeks I was there, starting just before Christmas, there's a ramping up of a military presence. Uh, There are constantly um, packs of camouflage-colored helicopters buzzing low over the city. There are um, military sea boats filled with soldiers zooming down the Nile River. And just coming back back from Juba into Uganda uh a few days ago uh watching you know passing by all these little villages where uh you know uh where polling stations are set up uh, there were also armed uh soldiers every single one of those villages kai uh, so,
1: could you is, yeah, could you give I, us
3: I think some... that i think that get going
1: could you give us any indication about like, the, the role of the international community? Because if, if there's a lot of oil in Sudan, my sense is that uh, you know, countries like the United States and China have some investment in the outcome of this referendum. So what, what kinds of influences are you seeing on the ground?
3: Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, to roughly oversimplify things, but only by a little bit, uh, the southern Sudanese leadership is in cahoots with the Chinese, uh, and hate uh, Americans. Um, so, I mean, it's it's difficult for Americans even to go into North Sudan. Uh, their visas cost way more than anybody else, for instance. Um, and the Americans, as a result of the headway with the North Sudanese, are uh, heavily sucking up to the South Sudanese. And the greatest evidence I saw of that was that for several days last week, John Kerry, the head of the US Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, was in South Sudan making nice with all the South Sudanese leaders and press conferences with them. I went to one of John Kerry's press conferences on the very first day of voting. Like uh people hadn't even been voting for a few hours at that point, and John Kerry was hailing the birth of a new nation. And I thought, holy smokes, most of the ballots aren't even in the boxes yet and John Kerry is already there basically doing victory laps with the South Sudanese people. So, yeah, I mean, everybody wants a piece of the action, uh, and that means a big piece of the oil action in uh, North and South Sudan.
1: And could you maybe talk briefly, is, is Canada's uh, have any reputation, representation there?
3: Yeah, you know, oddly, it's, it's easy to drive around Juba and see signs Scandinavian countries being involved in um in the region. The European Union. The European Union is is all over the place and they were heavily supportive of uh helping to run the referendum itself. Uh like I said, the Americans are all over the place. Carter Center people are are pretty much, you know, running the show. And but, you know, especially being a Canadian, uh, I was looking for any sign of the maple leaf and I saw none. Now this is somewhat purely speculative but uh, I mean the fact is that Canada it is becoming less and less involved in Africa but also uh, this is a, an issue of separation it's a, an issue of uh a, you know a, a mostly an ethnic group uh, a group of people that wants to uh, you know separate from the bigger country and you know, we both know, uh, having, you know, being Canadians, that the issue of separation and a people's, uh, self determination, uh, uh, that is a touchy subject. In Canada, Canada, the Canadian government has always, uh, weighed very carefully into, uh, other countries, um, you know, separation issues. And so I kind of have the feeling that, Uh, the the same thing could be happening here, where Canada is is just kind of stepping away and saying, you know what, I mean, like, if I'm the Harper government and, uh, you know, and I don't want to, you know, inflame the separatists or anything like that in Canada, I'm just going to, uh, you know, not say too much about what's going on in Sudan because if I I say, hey, great, so Sudanese people, you know, have their right to separate and they can you know, a vote for, you know, a majority vote to do so, then, uh, yeah, then Quebec separatists back in Canada might say, hey, you know, what about us uh, situation folks? So, um, so I would think that if, uh, if that, you know, separation vote comes through as expected and it's a landslide for separation, um, I can't wait to read the official Canadian response because I think it will be worded very carefully.
1: Okay, Kai, I want to thank you very much for uh, this report, uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing how things progress in this, uh, what uh, looks like will become a, a new, the newest indi- uh, country in Africa. So, thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much for talking to me. I appreciate it. Okay,
1: Kai yeah. Hassel-Reese, uh independent okay. reporter, speaking to us from Kampala, Uganda on the Sudan separation referendum. In May of last year, Canadian Dimension published a special issue on pensions. Our concern was not just with the level of retirement incomes of members of the workforce, many of which had no company pension plan, but also the even more dismal situation of the millions of elderly Canadians who have had no regular employment or only worked part time for very low wages. At that time, the Conservative government announced that it would support some reform of the Canadian pension plan. Not the doubling of CPP benefits urged by the Canadian unions, but some improvement over the existing levels. But this month, Finance Minister Flaherty declared that the government's deficit position would not allow it to proceed with any expansion for the time being. Instead he announced that it would be establishing something called Defined Contribution Pooled Registered Pension Plans, aimed at providing pensions to small business employees and the self-employed currently without any company pension. What does that mean for Canadians approaching retirement, and how will canada 's unions respond to this setback to answer these questions? Alert has contacted Chris Roberts, who is with the research department of the Canadian Labor Congress. We reached him in washington d c Hello, Chris, and welcome to Alert Hi. Could you tell us a little bit about this uh, plan of the finance ministers and uh, you know how it 's fallen short of your uh, expectations or hopes
4: right the prpps the uh proposed pooled registered pension plans. There's a lot of questions still unanswered about uh, uh, this proposal. All we know is that in December of last year, the finance ministers agreed to uh, work on this proposal. There's still a lot of details that have to be decided, tax changes, and there'll be negotiations around uh, provincial and territorial regulation. But uh, what little we do know is that there'll be essentially privately administered workplace pension Plan similar to a defined contribution workplace pension plan or a group RSP. Um, they'll be uh, likely offered by uh, the insurance industry and uh, similar financial institutions with uh, trust uh, divisions. Um, the attraction for employers is that uh, there would be a third party administer of these plans so that the cost to employers would be uh, much lower. Essentially, the idea is to create lower-cost pension plans by pooling uh, employer pension workplace pension plans, creating larger pools of capital.
1: Okay, and this plan also it, it would reach a, a lot of people who aren't c- covered currently by the Canada Pension Plan, people who are self-employed or people who belong to small business. That's... Uh, that's a good aspect of this plan, correct?
4: Well, there's a misconception about that, and in, in fact, I think it's been uh, intentionally uh, um, uh, intentionally supported by uh, the Alberta uh, finance minister, who has said that, uh, or or the uh, minister of state for. Um, pensions. Uh, Mr. Menzies, uh, there have been suggestions in, uh, in the media that uh, self-employed are not covered by the CPP, but in fact, that's not the case. Self-employed uh, Canadians do pay into the C- CPP. They pay both employer and employee contributions. So uh, that's not entirely correct. Um, we believe that the PRPPs will not address the uh, pension crisis facing uh, a lot of Canadians. Uh, it will not, uh, certainly not uh, address the problem uh, to the extent that an expanded CPP uh, promises to. Uh, there's a whole series of reasons for that, but uh, we're not uh, particularly optimistic about uh, another private pension proposal uh, to address uh, the, the gaps and deficiencies in Canada's retirement income system.
1: Okay, well, uh you mentioned, the, the, like, the, the Canada Pension Plan uh, does, in fact, uh, protect the self-employed. But uh, what about uh, these precarious workers? You know, people who are not uh, part of any, are currently not part of any uh, corporate pension plan. Uh, how, how would they be ad- uh, helped by this, uh, or would they? Like, what is there to system? Well,
4: you know? as, I, as I said, there's a lot of details that still need to be uh, uh, explained or, or decided, uh, but. Uh, We're not even sure that employers will be required to offer uh, PRPPs. Um, There may, in fact, be no uh, obligation on employers to to even offer the plants, and there won't be any obligation uh, to contribute to these plants on the part of employers, whereas currently employers do contribute to the CPP along with employees. So... uh, we don't uh, we we imagine that uh, there will still be the same uh, gaps in the system that exist currently um, we also know that uh, there are still likely to be costs associated with uh, employees participating in these plans uh, costs that are higher than the administrative and management uh, fees uh, that the uh, CPP um, uh, reports um, and Uh, These plans may not be fully portable, we don't know uh, to what extent they'll be portable uh, uh, across uh, employers, Um, and the employer, if uh, the employer offers a a plan, uh, can terminate a plan at will without really notifying the employees or change the plan at will. Um, There are a whole series of uh, real uh, difficulties with this proposal that uh, um, we're certainly concerned about.
1: So suppose if I'm a, a, a worker on one of these plans, what would be the risks to my pension uh, as as a, in this, according to this uh, PPRP, as opposed to what I have with, say, an expanded CPP?
4: Well, if you're paying, if you're lucky enough to have uh, an employer that that offers a PRPP and uh, even uh, contributes to it uh, voluntarily, which is. Uh, may not uh, be the case. You still don't have a guaranteed benefit uh, on retirement. The uh, defined contribution uh, nature of the PRPP will uh, will mean that uh, your dependent your retirement benefit uh, when you retire will depend on the state of the market when you retire, and that's a bit like you know playing the lottery or playing. Uh, really gambling uh, with the markets, the market is doing well, the stock markets are up, or equities or uh, you know, uh, bond values or the value of your investments are are doing well, then uh, you'll do well. But if uh, the markets happen to tank just as you're uh, planning your retirement, well, the value of your retirement benefits will be much less. Um, so it's unlike the CPP benefit. Uh, there's no guarantee. There's no Set rate of replacement of your pre-retirement earnings that you can look forward to, and your benefits aren't uh, protected against inflation.
1: So, what is the what? What are the unions going to do in in response to this to try to protect workers?
4: Well, we're still going to push ahead with our proposal to expand the CPP uh, as well as increase uh, the basic uh, uh, guaranteed income supplement for. Uh, Low-income seniors by 15 percent, and win uh, uh, insurance, pension insurance for workplace plans. Um, we feel this is the best uh, option, and certainly the PRPPs can't substitute for uh, uh, this this proposal that uh, that we have, and cannot be allowed to. Now, most uh, provinces, uh, majority of provinces, uh, still endorse uh, an expansion of the CPP. So we're going to. Uh, hold them to their commitments and continue to push for uh, what we think is the real, uh, best, uh, most uh, adequate and fair option for uh, uh, solving the the pension problems facing uh, future Canadians.
1: Okay, well Chris Roberts, I want to thank you very much for your insights and uh, we look forward to seeing how things develop around this issue in the future. Thank you very much for joining us on Alert. Pleasure. And that was Chris Roberts, a researcher with the Canadian Labour Congress.
5: Hi, this is Mitch Penolick. This is Music is a Weapon. And this week's show starts with a great song by the Byrne Sisters. Here is No More Silence.
6: No more silence. No more silence. We will shout it out No more silence For the mother Sister, brother We will shout it out No more silence For our children who will carry on? We will shout it out. No more silence. For our friends gone who have passed on,
0: we will shout it out.
6: No more silence. Side by side Together Stand and fight We will shout it up No more sight. A Texas town. Gone, gonna rise again. Walmart said we could never win if we fight for the right to our own union. It was seven to three and we voted it in. Gone, gonna rise again. We're the first union shop in a Walmart store. 10,000 more Gone, gonna rise again
0: Walmart
6: saw the writing on the wall Of the meat department and the union hall So they closed the shop and they screwed us all Gone, gonna rise again It's a feast or a famine Never rains but it pours gone They hardball and they settle the score Come, gonna rise again They close the meat department doors In 180 Walmart stores all stick together, we just might win Gone, gonna rise again Gone, gonna rise again
5: That was Charlie King and Karen Brando singing Walmart Union, gonna rise again There's a real good class struggle song. And before that, No More Silence sung by the Byrne Sisters. I don't speak Spanish. I grew up in downtown Toronto, and Spanish was far from anything that we learned in school or even on the street. I learned a little Italian, I learned a little Yiddish, a couple words in Japanese, but Spanish, uh uh-uh. There's a wonderful collection of songs uh, put out by the Smithsonian Institute. And here's a song called Corrido de Cesar Chavez. Now Cesar Chavez of course, is a great human being and a great labor leader and one of my heroes and this is a great song so here it is right now
7: Santo en la mañana. Salió César de Beleno, componiendo una campaña. Compañeros campesinos, esto va a ser un ejemplo, esta marcha la llevamos hasta mero sacramento. Cuando llegamos a Fresno, toda la gente gritaba, y que viva César Chávez, y la gente que llevaba. Nos despedimos de preso, nos despedimos con fe, para llegar muy tarde hasta el pueblo de Merced Ya vamos llegando a Stocken, ya mero la luz se fue Pero mi gente gritaba, sigan con bastante fe Cuando llegamos a Stocken, los mariachis nos cantaban Y que viva César Chávez y la Virgen que llevaba. ¡Viva los peregrinos! ¡Sí, señor! ¡Sí se
6: puede! Ahuá.
7: Contratistas y espiroles, esto va a ser una historia, ustedes van a ir y nosotros a la gloria Oiga señor César Chávez un nombre que se pronuncia en su pecho usted merece la Virgen de Guadalupe un 16 de marzo jueves santo en la mañana salió César de Belén, Una
5: that was Carino de Cesar Chavez, what a great tune, sung by People of the New House. One of the great things about folk music that I really always have loved about it and what probably attracted folk music to me personally as a, as a human being was a great bit of storytelling. The next song is by James Keelahan, Canadian songwriter, who is a magnificent storyteller. Most, most folk music is working class in its, in its essence. Uh, Trotsky said that all songs that and all art that came from bourgeois society was bourgeois art. I like Trotsky, but I disagree with him about that. So here is, according to Trotsky, a piece of bourgeois art that I really love. Here is James Keelahan with McConville's.
8: I work down at McConville's. It's the pub behind the square. If ever you're in Portadown, down anyone can point you there. We have loggers, ales, and porters But the thing that brings them in Is the whiskey that McConville brews That's where this all begins In all the years I've worked there And for fifty years before Not a bottle of the sweet stuff Ever walked outside the door McConville laid the rule down, and it was honored till today. You can drink your fill while at the bar, but the bottle has to stay. Six or seven years ago. When young Jimmy first came by He was looking for a local We were the third place that he tried He looked around, no ferns No telly blaring from the bar And once he tried the whiskey Jimmy never strayed too far He'd come in after dinner For an hour, maybe more He'd play some cards and talk and joke Cause that's what a local's for Before he'd leave most nights Because the bottles had to stay He'd ask me for a whiskey just to see him on his way Three days ago his mate came in He said Jimmy took a fall From a roof that he was working on He had no chance at all And today after the funeral After burying young Jim They came here to his second home Mourners crowded in That I did a thing I never thought I'd do till it was done I took a bottle from the shelf, I held it up for everyone. The rules are made for breaking, tonight the whiskey leaves the bar. An auction for the family will give me fifty pounds to start. At five hundred pounds the bidding stopped Yeah, you couldn't hear a sound But for the roar as Jimmy's friends stepped up And laid their pay packs down And I can't believe I did it I never thought I'd see the day That I'd hand someone the bottle And then watch it walk away as I was headed home tonight I passed the graveyard by I'm sure that I heard singing And silhouetted on the sky Where Jimmy's friends They were pouring something on his grave A little offering for young Jim Help him on his way. I work down at McConville's. That's the pub behind the square. If ever you're in Portadown, anyone.
5: That was James Keelahan with McConville's great song, eh? That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. Keep on picking.
1: Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca.
0: The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Gonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbanuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production
3: of Canadian Dimension magazine.